man, I've got a posted yesterday. If you're friends with me on Facebook, I posted I got a gift for you guys today, and I'm very excited to tell you what the gift is in just a moment. Our gift today is coming in the form of a communicator, and uh, I get the opportunity to sit and listen and be encouraged by this gift that I've given to you guys today. Um, I uh, when I started dating Diana. Um, it took me a long it took me a long time to get break into the family, but eventually I broke in. And uh, one of the ways that I was broken into uh, the family was by our communicator today. And because he's not going to share this story with you guys today, I think I might as well. He might try to be. I don't know if he's going to be pastorish or not today, but I'm going to tell you what he did to me. And because uh, I think sometimes when we get up here, you're like, "Oh, that man, that's a good godly man up there. That guy, he loves Jesus and he's doing a great job." And so Diana's dad says, "Man, we really want you to be in the family, but I got to introduce you to Diana's uncle." And I said, "Great, that's awesome." And so he said, I want you and Derek to meet me at a golf club over in Jacksonville. We're going we're gonna to go golfing together. I said, yeah, no problem. I'll be there. And so we get on the golf, cl- on the golf course. If you know anything about golf, it's a fun, it's, it's an uptight sport. But if you go with the right people, it can, be actually, it can actually be fun. And so I'm on the golf course. And there's a, with golf clubs, they sit in the back of the golf cart. And as you drive, there's momentum in the golf cart. And if you unlock, unlock the golf carts, the golf clubs will fall out. Now, that's completely disrespectful to golf clubs all around America, and golf clubs have feelings. So the first couple of holes, Derek's like, these guys are going to just torment us all day long. And so they unlatched our golf clubs, Randy. They're falling out the back several times. I was, I'm still a slow learner. My golf clubs, well, I thought it was over. Kirk was pushing me, was pushing me in sand traps. Like, I'm just like, I can't stop them. So, like, so I thought it was all over, and then eventually, I'm not even sure you're supposed to tell this kind of story in church, but I'm telling you guys. I'm sitting in the cart, and Derek's like, and Derek's dad says, I want you guys to come here. We're going to get a picture together. I said, That's, these, guys are, these guys are so nice. And they're buying to say, hey, whoever wins tonight is, is going is to pay for Maggiano's. Well, I couldn't afford Maggiano's. So I'm like, we got to win this thing. And so Derek's like, these guys are going to beat us. Either they're going to beat us in golf or they're going to beat us up. So, so we get up there, and we take our picture, and Derek and I are up there teeing off. And I hear, I hear uh, Diana's dad, and I hear Uncle Kirk's uh, laughing in the background. I'm like, what are they laughing at? So as we turn around, Derek and I, Derek's like, you turn around. We turn around, and our golf, our golf cart is being pushed over into a, into, off a cliff, off in this ravine. And it flips over, and Derek and I can't stop laughing. It's so funny. And it was, it, it was kind of funny. And the next thing you hear, shh, the battery ass is pouring out of the golf cart. So Derek and I, we did what anybody else would do. We left the golf cart there, and we ran to our car, and we got in the truck, and we took off. And we made them flip it back over. We, we weren't even strong enough to lift it back over. So they did that, and they got us good. But um, it's very rare that we'll have two of the greatest communicators in the country in the same exact building at the same exact time, and only one being communicating. One's not me. One is uh, Kirk, our speaker today, the gift to have retained. One's Diana's dad. And, and these guys have been speaking all around the world. They're, they're a gift to our generation. I'm thankful they're going to be sharing God's word. We're in for a treat today. This, after we're done today hearing the message, you're like, man, that was a nice, nice gift. And so could, we do, could you guys do me a favor as Hope Church? Can we stand to our feet and can we honor our speaker today, Mr. Kirk Nowry? I thought for a second about pushing him off the stage right there for that introduction. That is good to see you guys today. Uh, I hope that you're as encouraged as I am coming to this new church launch that's about to turn one. I believe, there you go, come on. I've said for a long, long time that I believe the hope of the world is the local church. And whenever I see uh, young people like Wesley and, and Diana, pastors Wesley and Diana, man, she did 
Dinah, you did an awesome job this morning. Uh, your prayers reached down inside my soul, and I am so proud of you. I've known you since you were a little girl, and how God's using you and your family and Wes. I've believed in this guy. I knew God was going to use him in a great way, and I think this first year is just a foundation for what God intends to do in the years that are ahead. And so thank you for allowing me to come in and talk to you this morning. Um, I'd like to just sit down and give an invitation and, and, um, and let us all go because we've already been blessed. God's already spoken to my heart, and I trust He has to yours. And as you heard uh, Wesley tell that story, right now even I'm in a little bit of a sweat because that's not the only story about me and my life. In fact, my best friend David said to me not long ago, he said, you know, Kirk, I think at your core what your problem is is that you just never turn down a dare, and that's probably pretty true, and God man, a, little, a lot of trouble from time to time, but I find myself when I'm faced up against a great challenge that God has put before my eyes that I get down on my knees and ask God, use me in spite of myself. And help me, Lord, be your hands and feet. Help me be your compassion to the challenge that lies ahead. Wesley told me that the series you're in is a series entitled, He Never Said That. The minute he told me that, I don't know about you, but some of the hardest people to minister to in my life is my own family. Over the years, it has been some of the greatest challenges. I remember this one particular man that when I surrendered to ministry and went to him to say that I was going to spend the rest of my life in the Lord's work, he looked at me and he said this. He said, well, I'm disappointed. He said, I want you to know that I've always believed that God helps those that help themselves. He said, that's in the Bible. And I thought for just a second, and I said, I don't think that's in the Bible. And I remember going back and looking back through my Bible and calling a few men smarter than me, and they said, no, that's not in the Bible, but a very commonly used phrase that men use, because we like to talk about who hasn't helped us. We like to talk about as men how we are self-made. And I want you to know that there aren't any self-made men. That if we look at where we are, there have been people around us that through responsibility and sacrifice, that we have stood on their shoulders. And if there are men that say that and truly believe that, they really haven't accomplished much. God never said that He helps a man that helps himself. What He said was that He'll help a man that helps others. I have a thought for you as we begin this morning, then I'm going to pray, we're going to go to the Scripture, I'm going to share some thoughts out of my life's experience, and and I trust that it will be a help and an encouragement. I want you to to go out of here with some answers and with some encouragement today, but I thought about this. What if you got everything you ever dreamed in life, everything you ever dreamed for, and came to the end of your life and it wasn't enough? My wife and I and our team right now are working in India. 
Of all the places I've worked in in my lifetime, it's the hardest. Through my friendship with David Janney and this family, they launched me on a missions track in 1991 in Albania. I didn't even want to go. And I can remember when I got to Tirana and David and the team greeted me there, what I saw in the suffering of children forever uh, marked my heart and set my family and I in a direction of building hope centers that it was the, the Janney model to build. We moved around different places in the world with them, and, and here this past year, we opened our first hope center in, in India this past week. The Washington Post reported of a 13-year-old girl in northern India, not too far from us, and where our center is, that late one night, her father came in drunk, her mother had died some months ago, discouraged and alcoholic because of the abuse of her husband, and went into this little concrete room they lived in, laid down next to his 13-year-old daughter, put his hand over her mouth, and he raped her. The little girl was so afraid, and as I have traveled to these rural villages, these, these pitifully poor places, the Hindu government is so overwhelmed with legal cases that they, uh, thousands of years ago, formed these little tribunals in these villages that become the legal hierarchy of that village. So they brought the little girl in, set her in a corner, she had a little pink dress on, her face was veiled, and after... She was urged to tell her broken story. They brought her father in. He admitted to what he did and his story. And the tribunal sentenced him to 15 sticks. And in India, what that means is, is they take a rod and they hit you with it enough times until it breaks. And then they get another stick and they, they hit you with it, lash you with it until it breaks. 15 sticks for the father. And then they put a rope around the little girl's waist tied it to her hands, pulled her over a limb, took her clothes off to where she was laid naked, and they sentenced her to five sticks and beat her until she was almost dead. India is still a place of honor killings. It's a place of suffering that's it's unimaginable. And so in that challenge of a country of 1.2 billion people, 20 million orphans, disease from leprosy to any disease that is on the planet right now you find in India, our challenge is to relieve suffering, to, to bring suffering to, to people that have been abandoned and lost hope in Jesus' name. And so we find ourselves in America, coming back to America and and every other month we're now over in India, and when I come back, it's hard for us to come back. I've been doing this a long time, and I'm finally coming to this place in my life after I've turned 60 now, to where I just don't understand the issues of America. You come back out of leprosy and yellow fever and malaria and and the treatment of women and girls like no other place I've experienced in all my travels in the world. And I see the topics we talk about today. I was watching the news and the political talks this past week, and they said the number one issue in America was the economy and jobs. There's not one of us that don't want to be able to provide for our families. 
and take on the responsibility of them and, and provide for them in a sacrificial way. But I must say to you this morning, that's hard for me to deal with, realizing what the rest of the world faces, the refugee camps of northern Iraq with the Syrians and the Kurds. Or you go to the Hope Center at Kawangwari Slum, the epicenter of HIV infection. You go to Albania, where David and I began. I was talking to a young man this week that came in to do some work in our home, and I said, where are you from? He said, Albania. I said, Albania. I said, I was there in 1991. He said, when? I said, it was right there in January, February. It was still winter. He said, I escaped Albania in 1991 in March on the 5th. He said, I jumped onto a rope onto a ferry and rode it over to Italy, and they fought me, and I crawled my way around and finally came to what I dreamed for. I came to America. And he showed me pictures of hanging on that rope. Somebody had taken a picture of him hanging on that rope on that ship to get out of Albania when David and I were over there and we began that work. And so I come back and I have this opportunity to stand in front of you at church less than one year old that's about to celebrate and we come together and I think it's important for us how we think. God doesn't help men that help themselves. God helps men that help others, help their families and their wives and children and And certainly we have needy people in the United States, but I must say to you that compared to the world that I have seen, that the poorest in America are rich in the eyes of those that are in India and Africa and Central America and other places around the world. And God has called every one of us. In fact, let's look at 1 Timothy chapter 6 and see what that calling is. Let's see what that command is. 1 Timothy chapter 6, reading from the NLT, the Scripture says, Teach those who are rich in this world not to be proud and not to trust in their money, which is so unreliable. Their trust should be in God, who richly gives us all we need for our enjoyment. Tell them to use their money to do good. They should be rich in good works and generous to those in need, always being ready to share with others. By doing this, they will be storing up for themselves treasures as a good foundation for the future. And the phrase that I want you to underline if you have a Bible or remember as you go out of here today, so that you may experience a true life. I don't want one man in here, no matter what your age is, young or old, to come to the end of your life and have earned everything you ever dreamed and realize that there's still a hole in your heart, that it wasn't enough. The Scripture by the Apostle Paul teaching his son in the faith is if I would be teaching our sons or I would be sitting down talking to Wesley or or to Derek, I would look at you and I would say that uh, I want to pass this truth on to you, that money won't get you there. Can't trust in it because it's too unreliable. You have to do good. You have to put your faith and confidence in God. And if you will do that, you will experience a true life, 
A life that when you come to the end, regardless of what that ending looks like, you'll be able to look at your family and those just a few friends that gather around that bed for the last time and say it was a true life. A friend of mine recently challenged me with this thought. He said, let's pray at this stage of our lives that we might have a Christian ending to our life. I pray that every day of my life now. My aunt's over here, and, and her dad was my spiritual he- hero. He died when he was 63 years old. He seems so old. But I can tell you that the stories that people tell, they posted a picture of him and, uh, and Anne on Facebook this past week, and everybody was putting these comments all these years later. And I thought to myself, he was a simple man, an electrician. He didn't have much. In fact, he was of the generation that if you had a, a washing machine and, and a small pickup truck and a house that you could leave your wife so you wouldn't have to worry about her after he died, he was a rich man. But he always had time for others. That's what Paul's talking about. He said, teach them, command them to do good, to do the right thing, to be men of responsibility who are willing to sacrifice for others before they reach out for their own dreams in this life. That way, you take on a life that's truly life, a true life. So how do you get there? You know, if I was sitting on the top of the stage right now, and it was just a few of us, and we had coffee, and And you said, tell us about these 40 years in ministry now around the world and what you've learned and what you would say to us if this was the only day I would ever see you, if this was the only talk I ever did, the only time you would ever meet me. I'd say to you, and until you get to a place when you get up every morning as as a man and say that what God has put in my hands, I'm going to re-surrender to Him, that it never was about me. It was about what God wanted to do through me. It's always about God. It's always about Jesus Christ. Because we are but fallible human beings. And so I ask you, if you would, tomorrow morning, men, when you get up, turn around on the side of the bed. Before you stand up, say, Lord, with all I have to face today, I re-surrender all of it to you, my relationship with my wife, my kids, their spouses, our grandchildren, the people I'll come in contact with. It seems like since I was eight years old, I've been up against impossible challenges that God's assigned me things that I will assure you are way over my head. And a couple of times the devil has knocked my legs out from underneath me in a way that I felt like just about every bone in my body was broken. And sometimes you can feel like there's just nobody there to encourage you or, or lift you up or, or be there to help, and that's a lie of Satan. Because if you'll say to God, I'm going to resurrender all that I have, may not be a lot, Lord, but what you've put in my hand to you. Now, you put me in front of people. You allow me to intersect people, and I won't talk about me. I'll talk about you. You've got to stay in a place of resurrender. Number two, you've got to listen to God. My wife and I left Miami this morning very early, about five, and 
and drove up to speak today, and I was so excited to come and be with you guys, and, and we got up to, to uh, Fort Pierce to cut over on the turnpike off I-95 and hit one of my favorite places. We went into Waffle House. Hunting season started. I don't know if any of your hunters, but I am. And uh, the hunters were in, the four-wheelers were out there. They didn't look like they had any luck. And I was listening to everything they talked about, big pickup trucks and fooling around with the waitresses and all the things that were going on that are typical in a Waffle House. You know, there are a lot of voices speaking into men today. And you will only be the kind of man that you need to be by the kind of men you surround yourself with. And as they speak into you, that will have influence on you. And so when you pray in that morning and you say, Lord, I just resurrender everything I have, number two, I need you to listen to God before you listen to others. God speaks through His Word, but God speaks through people. Might not like what they say all the time, but He, he does. I believe in my experience in the, in the outdoors, it's not so much from hunting and fishing, it's by how God whispered His truth into my life, something He wanted me to know. The Bible says that if we don't declare the glory of God, that the rocks will speak out. God can speak any way He wants to speak. He's God. But you have to be willing to listen to Him. And then the third and last thing is, you've got to make a promise. Look out at all these men in here, all these different guys, most of you young. Some of you look like me, bit skin up. I don't care what place you are in life. A promise is only as good as your word. Just this past week, I was with some folks that want to enter into a relationship with our ministry and what we're trying to do and all of that business. I said, well, do we need to draw up an agreement? And they said, yeah, we'll have our lawyers uh, draw up the agreement. We got done. We prayed. And and when I stood up, I said, "Um, this is the way my dad would do it. I give you my word, I'll hold up my end of the log, and I put my hand out. If you knew my mom and dad, they didn't have much. My brother and I had an argument the other day that when we grew up, we were poor. My brother said, we're not poor. Stop telling people that. I said, what's the matter? Are you embarrassed that we grew up in a trailer park? He said, yeah, but we moved out of that trailer park. I said, yeah, but I remember the trailer park and us picking out places to eat that were 99 cents all you can eat. Even back in those days, that was not Golden Corral. But when my dad gave you his word, he meant it. You make a promise, you keep it. If you'll trust God, you have no idea the places God will take you. It was my birthday in 1991... I can still remember my secretary saying, hey, listen, your best friend David called, and uh, he's sending you a plane ticket. You're going to Albania. I said, I'm not going to Albania. I'm pastoring this big church in Miami and had this school, and I had more responsibility than I knew what to do. And, And she said, no, it's your birthday present. You're going. And he had me check with the people there that were, uh, you know, my circle of elders or deacons or whatever, and, and they all approved it. And so you're going. And I can remember, I didn't want to go. Had no idea why I would take the time to do that until I got off that plane. 
and walked into that black and white picture. And David and I walked into that compound and we saw those children suffering. And I found my cause in life. My cause wasn't pastoring one church. My cause was serving the local church by being out there in the field, building these hope centers and raising resources and helping people find their holy discomfort. Because I believe every one of you in here, if I, if I talk to you today, I would say, find the thing that upsets you most in this world. The thing that when you read it, gets you so upset. I've been sick to my stomach. My wife will tell you since I read the article about this little girl in India because our orphanage has 62 of those little girls right now and 260 in our school. You picture one of these brown-skinned little girls with her wrist tied and a rope around her waist and pulled up over a limb in front of men and stripped naked and and beat with a, a rod, five different rods lashing her until they broke. I'm just sick to my stomach. 20 million orphans. You say, I don't know what we do about that. I don't know what we'll do about it either, but I can tell you what you can do. You can make a difference in one's life. And you say, well, you know, how far is it to India? It's about 21 or 22 air hours. You say, I can't do that. I understand. But some of you would say, I would do that. How much does that cost? About 1500 bucks. No, I couldn't do that. I said, I understand that. But could you give to it? Could you pray for it? Could you help support a, a little girl, whether it's in, in Albania or Africa or Central America at our Hope Center in Pavis with our daughter or in India? Could you, could you make a difference in one life? And if you say no, then I'm going to ask you to get back down on your knees with what you have. And re-surrender your, everything in your life and listen to God. Make a promise and keep it. Because every one of us ought to be defined by our holy discomfort. Not by the American dream. It changes. It's sold to us. And it's different than when I was a young man. I believe every one of us had, ought to have a purpose because of the, the Christian that we are that when people say, well, tell me a little bit about you, that you don't say, uh, well, I'm an electrician and I like to fish and hunt and got a pickup truck. I'm a Ford man. You know, it takes you forever to get to the point to say, you know who I am? I'm a man that loves his wife, loves his children, loves the local church. My family and I were involved in India and Africa or Central America or Eastern Europe. We're trying to relieve suffering in Jesus' name. Let that define you, and you'll come to the end of your life, and your life will be true, a true life. You say, how'd you get to India? I didn't want to go to India. I've had opportunities to go to India. Didn't want to go. Don't like the food. Heard it smelled bad. Heard about all the diseases. Didn't want to go. So on our staff, our financial officer, Anthony Damo, his wife, Stephanie, had four children. That little boy by the name of Mason, five years old. Two years ago, on Friday night, he got a fever. His stomach was hurting. His mom sat up with him through the night in the morning, took him to urgent care. They said, go to the hospital. And he had his appendix taken out. Got home. He was upset because he didn't get to ride in the, in the uh, ambulance. 
Well, old Mason is a rascal. He's all California men. Mohawk. He didn't want anybody to call him Mason, wanted to be called Moose. Anytime I came out there to see him, wherever we were, he'd jump up at the table, get down on the floor, put his arm up there. He wanted to arm wrestle, uh, arm wrestle me wherever I was. Well, his mom had worked in India while she was in college. She had devotions with her kids at night. And she would tell these stories about Indian working not far from Mother Teresa's place in Kolkata. And so they prayed all year long for India. And he used to say, when people would say, Moose, what do you want for your birthday or for your Christmas present this year? I want to go to India. Kept telling his mom and dad, I want to go to India. So he had his appendix out. He came home. His fever picked back up called the doctor, they called, uh, his mom called the doctor, they said get him back to the hospital immediately, and got to one of the finest hospitals in all of Los Angeles, and by early afternoon, God had called him home. One of the toughest funerals that I've ever been at, because we loved this family, we were connected to them. I arm wrestled with this little boy, and I'm sitting at the table with a friend of mine, my wife and I, and the reception after the funeral was at the Naimo home and we were all out in the front yard and tables and the church had brought food. There were just a lot of people. My friend looked across me about the way David did that day. He bought me a ticket to go to Albania. It's been a long time ago, 1991. But he looked at me and he said, how about you going to India and find us a spot and let's build a Hope Center called Mason's Place. Let's answer that little boy's prayer for India. Let's go make a difference. So every other month now this year, I'm in India for a month. This past trip in the middle of the summer, the temperature never got below 120 degrees Fahrenheit. My scalp blistered. And I have hair. My wife was putting these ice rags on my head. We were working 12, 15-hour days on the renovation of this compound. And when I just get to where I said, I can't do this anymore, it was like a little boy in heaven whispered to me and said, Uncle Kurt, thanks for doing this for me and answering this prayer. Teach those that are rich. There's not one that's listening to me right now that doesn't know God has been good to them. Don't put your trust in money, which is so uncertain but put your trust in God. Do good and share with others. Relieve suffering in Jesus' name. And this way you will live a life that's a true life. Get up in the morning and resurrender. Listen to God first. And then remember your promises and keep them. Bow your heads with me in prayer. Father, I'm so grateful to watch Wesley go from a young man to a, a mature man, a pastor, to see Diana pastor us through worship and prayer, to see the team that I met earlier that are volunteers helping to launch this church. I pray, Father, your blessing on this place. I pray. I pray you'd put your strong angels around it and protect them. I pray, Father, that um, 
that people might know in the days ahead that God is at work here and that this ministry is a ministry of grace that gives hope to people that have tried and fallen and find themselves on their faces don't know how to get up. Lord, we all journey together. We make mistakes. We get back up. And we forge ahead because we believe in our hearts greater is He than, that is in us than he that's in the world. If there's one person that's here today that does not know you, that they came in for the first time or been coming a while and they can't honestly say that they know how to get to heaven, that they know how to have their sins forgiven, I pray this morning that they might receive you, my Lord Jesus, as their Savior, their Christ, their Lord. So while we're in this time of prayer, if you can't honestly say that you know that if you died this afternoon, that heaven would be your home, you can pray this simple prayer after me. And this morning, because of the prayer that the Bible teaches us, the Bible says you will be saved from judgment and your sins will be forgiven. A prayer goes like this. Pray it quietly while I pray it aloud. It, it says, Dear God, I'm a sinner. Have mercy on me as a sinner and forgive me of my sins. And dear Lord, today I receive you as my Savior and Lord. I believe you died on the cross of Calvary for me. Today I'm putting my trust in you. I make you Lord of my life. I pray this in Jesus' name.